Recently, two related epidemics connected with e-cigarettes emerged in the United States. In 2019, there was a multi-state outbreak of e-cigarette or vaping product use-associated lung injury, called Ivali, with more than 2,500 cases reported and more than 50 deaths confirmed. Over a longer time frame, the number of adolescents who use e-cigarettes has increased dramatically, and it's raised concern in the public health and medical communities. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with David Cristiani, a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and of environmental genetics at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Cristiani, could you start by telling us a bit about the Ivali outbreak? What do we know about the causes of the outbreak and the types of products that have been involved? So the Ivali term mentioned is now the sort of adopted term for electronic vaping-associated lung injury. It's essentially acute lung injury that appears to be a chemical pneumonitis, and it causes, in many cases, it can range from relatively mild pneumonitis to severe respiratory failure with a picture that's identical to acute respiratory distress syndrome. As you mentioned, the CDC data shows that it evolved in 2019, and it was a bit mysterious at first as to what might be causing it in vaping solutions since the histories of individuals who were admitted to hospital with this varied quite a bit. About 85% turned out to have been vaping THC or THC nicotine mixtures, and still about 15% denied any use of marijuana-type products. But the best evidence to date looks like that it's driven mostly by THC products that have been manipulated by hand at home or by distributors, buying empty cartridges and filling them with some concentration of THC or CBD and then oil such as vitamin E acetate. And vitamin E acetate is now seen as the probably most likely parent compound that's responsible for it. The reason I say parent compound is we don't actually know whether it's a vitamin E acetate by itself or whether it's a breakdown product since these materials are heated to varying degrees of temperature in the vaping pens. And one of the reasons this is so challenging is individuals can alter the temperature. So you have individuals altering the composition of the material, and then you have the use at the use point, temperature variations, which can give you not just particulates, but gases that come off that are quite toxic to the lung. So the vitamin E acetate, an oily solution, is showing up in bronchovalar lavage fluid of patients who have been very sick and in ICUs, but we actually don't have any good measures of the non-particulate fraction of this in life, in vivo. And so it could well be that gases that are produced by the breakdown products of high temperature heating could be just as responsible. But it does look like there's a lot of focus on the parent compound of vitamin E acetate and or similar oils. Does the worst of that outbreak seem to be over? It appears to be by the CDC data. It seems to be ebbing, which suggests that public education to the public and to the physicians not to vape, particularly don't vape THC products, has gotten through. I think it is still unclear whether it's just vitamin E acetate and whether non-THC products are involved. And the importance for figuring that out has to do with, so obvious, I guess, to our audience, but going forward, if nicotine products are going to be used, is there a way to make sure that there aren't any oily substances in there that can cause this? They tend not to use oils and nicotine. They tend to use glycerin and propylene glycol, but there are now toxicology coming out that suggests that the breakdown products of those materials can be toxic on a chronic basis rather than an acute basis. So because, stepping back, because policy-wise, 
the whole vaping industry was not regulated well, we actually don't know a lot of the components of both the nicotinic products and THC products since companies weren't required to disclose them. So we need to learn a lot more about the toxicology of these products. So even if the E-Valley epidemic is ebbing, that's the acute epidemic, the widespread use of the nicotinic products and of THC, say, without vitamin E, is still going to continue, and we still need to learn more about the chronic effects. So you do have a two-phase or double epidemic going on. One is the acute one, which seems to be fortunately adding. The other is, what does this mean long-term for young people and older people who are using these products as far as chronic lung disease? So what about the increase in vaping by young people in general? King and colleagues from the CDC wrote in a recent Perspective article that more than a quarter of high school students and 10% of middle school students reported using e-cigarettes in 2019. What's driving that trend? So this is very, very concerning from a public health point of view. I think there are a number of reasons why that trend has increased. One is there was a perception driven by the industry that vaping is less toxic than cigarette smoking as far as delivery systems of something like nicotine. The THC industry, of course, there are other ways of using THC. But once the vaping mentality started to, I think, drift in that this is somehow less toxic, then the youth started to pick it up. And then what happened with nicotine is it's extremely addicting. It's more addicting than THC. And so we have a lot of youngsters, according to the CDC article and the data that they use, who otherwise may not have started smoking combustible cigarettes, who are now getting hooked on nicotine because of vaping. And then the data is coming out that once you're hooked on nicotine, you're more likely to use traditional tobacco products. So this is unfortunately very insidious, and I think it's a very profitable industry. And so the nicotine addiction aspects of this are really problematic. So youngsters are telling us that college age and even high school age, you go to parties, and there's, in addition to punch and other things there, there's vaping products, some with THC, some with just nicotine. And I think the message there in articles such as King's is nicotine is extremely addictive, And then once you get addicted, you have a problem with chronic use. THC seems to be less addictive, but that has a different use pattern in terms of people using it without alcohol and other things at parties. But the nicotine aspect of it, I think we need to realize that young brains are being addicted at a very high rate. The concentrations of the nicotine are high in these products, and the nature of the vaping process, instead of just taking an occasional puff, some people basically just puff a lot. So the industry says per puff, this looks less bad than traditional tobacco. You have to realize when you see people vaping, they're basically uh, often constantly inhaling it. So the cumulative dose over a daytime might well exceed the nicotine doses they got with traditional cigarettes. But again, the point made by the CDC authors is that a lot of youth, a lot of young people who otherwise wouldn't have started smoking cigarettes are now getting hooked on nicotine by this method. I mean, Jeff Drazen and I were talking recently about this at a meeting in Spain, their European Respiratory Society, where I was given a talk on E-Valley. And he reminded us that the data on nicotine addiction is really quite worrisome, that even in incidental experiments, uh, there was a colleague of ours at the Brigham that was doing experiments back in the 80s and 90s on mice, and they were smoking the mice, but they were looking at physiologic changes and cellular changes. They weren't looking at addiction. But the first day, when they want to put the mice in this small tube chamber, The mice didn't want to go in. They would scratch the technician, bite them, whatever. Once they're forced in the chamber and they were given one shift worth of tobacco smoke, and the next day they would run into the chamber with no encouragement needed. 
that's a single day with an adult mouse. So just imagine a developing brain, a human brain that's still developing, highly addictive substance, and you connect the dots and we have a major epidemic on our hands. What, in fact, do we know about the effects of nicotine on brain development? Well, I think there's a lot of literature on nicotine addiction. I'm not an expert on the developmental effects. I think a lot of work is going on in the addiction community and on the developmental psych community on nicotine in young people. I mean, we noticed one of the reasons that nicotine from our med school days had attained widespread use is it's a somewhat unique compound in that it doesn't make you sleepy, so it has a way of calming nerves without sedation. And every other drug we use that's developed to calm anxiety or nerves is usually sedating. So we have something that both increases or doesn't change alertness, but also calms and then is thirdly very addictive. So we know it's a unique issue even for adults. For children, I think the, my limited knowledge in this area is that they're even more susceptible to the addictive aspects of it, but I don't know about impairment. It could well be that alertness is still maintained, but this just makes it that much more dangerous as an addictive compound. What about the effects of vaping among adults? Is there convincing evidence that e-cigarettes will lead to smoking cessation and can reduce the risk associated with traditional cigarettes? Well, there was one trial published in the Lincoln Journal that showed that Using vaping-related nicotinic products in a controlled trial was more effective than patches and other nicotine delivery systems for replacement and smoking cessation. This is a highly selective group of chronic heavy cigarette smokers. And so I think based on trials such as that in the UK, some societies have advocated the use of it to get people off tobacco, which causes in the U.S. 400,000 deaths a year. It's not trivial. And I believe chronic cigarette smokers, 50% of them die of a cigarette-related disease if they still smoke. So we know this is not trivial. The, the problem is, I think, that's highly directed, and it is quite possible that in someone who's a heavy tobacco smoker, a couple of packs a day, wants to quit, that nicotinic substitution products are not working well, that it's quite possible in those highly select situations there might be some usefulness. The problem is you now have to balance it against all of the other factors of a public health epidemic of pushing this product, the same companies who are claiming we can help you quit cigarettes are pushing it in the young community and in the minority communities and all the flavorants and the way it's formulated. I mean, when does a heavy tobacco smoker who wants to quit a tobacco day have it need to have extra watermelon flavored vaping fluid to help quit smoking? So there's a sort of disingenuous application here by the industry that I think is problematic. In those select situations, can it have usefulness? Quite possible, but there are also now cases, and we've seen some at the Mass General, of chronic tobacco users who switch to vaping who are showing up with illnesses such as bronchiolitis with interstitial lung disease were not diagnosed when they were still on cigarettes, which is the most common cause of RBILD. So there's no question about that. So it's not clear to me that it's totally benign way of actually having people get off smoking, given that there are other substitutes out there, even if it did in some trials show increased effectiveness. There's still some uh, cost-benefit that has to be looked at here. So, I, and, and lastly, there have even been E-Valley cases of adults in their 60s, one in Western Mass, another one that was written up in the Times from Nebraska. People never touched THC in their lives, really were just heavy smokers, and then wanted to get off. Their doctor helped them 
you know, move to vaping, and they wind up with E-Valley. Those are still a mystery to me because it's not clear to me why, if it's vitamin E acetate, why they would still get sick. And that does suggest that there might be some ingredients in the nicotinic pods that are still not totally disclosed, or at least that are produced on heat that we don't understand well. And so there's some crossover as well with those products and E-Valley. But I think it's mostly a chronic issue, as you ask, as far as smokers trying to get off tobacco smoking, assuming that they're now going to continue with their nicotine addiction via vaping. Finally, what do you see as the remedy? Do you think current or even proposed state federal regulations related to e-cigarettes are going to make the difference? I think that's really critical that the regulatory environment get on this. Now, I mean, I don't think we should ban nicotine vaping. That will drive it underground. It would cause probably a very thriving underground market and a lot of problems there. But I do think that the pass that the FDA gave the industry for 10 years was not good and was well overdue that we now do a much more rigorous inventory of what the formulations are and what the products are upon heating. So that the labeling and the regulation of the formulation is better controlled. In the case of THC vaping, I think there really has to be a hard knock on getting anything that resembles vitamin E acetate out of those solutions. And whether THC should even be vaped is a question. Now, there again, there are other ways of delivering THC for that industry to survive without necessarily use vaping. So it's possible that that case, they may have to come down harder on the vaping aspect. The reason these two products are different, by the way, is it's chemistry. So nicotine is more soluble. You can mix it in glycerin and propylene glycol as a vehicle. THC is a very oily substance. It doesn't make, not miscible in water and cannot be formulated with propylene glycol. It has to be formulated with another oil. And so you have two sort of very oily substances in the case of THC vaping. You have a less of an oil issue with nicotine because it can be formulated presumably with less toxic compounds, and they are less toxic acutely. We do not see E-Valley with propylene glycol or glycerin, but I'm still concerned about the chronic effects of the nicotine plus those compounds once they're heated. When we looked at the vapors in a lab, you heat them up from the nicotine compounds, we get a whole bunch of compounds that are not listed on the label. The label says nicotine, glycerin, glycerin, and propylene glycol. When we put it in the lab and we publish this, you get xylene, benzene, chrolian, nitriles, a lot of industrial solvents and other material that comes off. And we've also measured fungal mycotoxins and bacterial mycotoxins and just recently published one on Juul because Jewel said we didn't look at their product, and we did. They didn't have bacteria, but they had fungal mycotoxins in there. So we need a much stricter regulatory format if this product's going to be formulated, nicotine products, and put on the market. And it really has to be, I think, out of the hands of youth and young people. And the THC situation, as I said, is probably going to be another kind of regulatory approach, probably banning vitamin E acetate and similar oils altogether. But there needs to be disclosure of what's in all of these products before I think the regulators can get a better handle on what to allow and what not to allow. Thank you, Dr. Cristiani.